have my soul You have my yes You have my all You have my heart You have my soul You have my yes You have my all All right, so everybody take your Bibles and go ahead and turn to Micah chapter 6. As we were talking about, and I heard many of you pray, we're living through some very serious times right now. It just seems like the airwaves are filled with conflicting ideologies. I was thinking of this verse in Psalms. David asked God to protect us from the strife of tongues, the strife of tongues. And I think that's so important because Satan wants to damage our souls, and he does it through harassment. He does it through words. Words can just do violence to our souls. And as we look around us, we see that violence in our cities. We see it in our families. Sometimes we see it in our own lives. And we need to keep in mind that beneath this, these violences, these hostilities that we see, there are spiritual hostilities. And as we heard earlier that in one of our prayers that Scripture tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and mights and dominions. So in Micah chapter 6, you know, I was thinking also before I get into this, you know, we've talked about this also in fellowship that, you know, the, the great sin of the fall is that mankind thought that he could live independently from God. And I think that's the when we talk about the old nature, that is what the old nature is all about, that you you think that you can live independently from God. And so the old nature, of course, doesn't spend any time reading the Bible. And the old nature doesn't spend any time communing with God and fellowshipping with God because I can exist without him. But, you know, the greatness of this walk is not in, in our own inherent abilities, but it's in our relationship with God. Micah 6 and look at verse 8, it says, And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what it's all about. It's a walk. It's a walk. I think of Jesus. I mean, there's a lot of things that Jesus did. But I always think about that verse where it talks about Jesus rising a great while before day. He went to a solitary place. And there, what? Prayed. He prayed. Go in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5. See, it's our walk with our Heavenly Father. That's what it's all about. And look in verse 22. It says, and after he became the father of Methuselah, if you guys remember Methuselah, he was the one who lived to, to almost a thousand years old. It says, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, the thing is, is Enoch, he's not really, he doesn't get a lot of ink in the Bible. Theologically, you can pass right by Enoch and not even notice. But the key point for Enoch is that he walked with God for 300 years. That's pretty amazing. I mean, for those of us who have endeavored to walk with God, we understand that we have an enemy who tries to trip us up and to keep us from walking with God. The, the feat of being able to walk 300 years with God is, is no small task. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And in verse 5, it says, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death 
He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. <clears throat> Isn't that great? So, as I said, Enoch doesn't get a lot of ink in the Bible, but the ink he does get is pretty significant. That here is a man who walked with God for 300 years, and here's a man who pleased God. And I would go as far as to say the reason that he walked 300 years with God was because he pleased God. Isn't that something? So today we're going to look a little bit at what does it mean to walk with God? What's wrapped up in that? First thing we'll look at is what does it mean to walk apart from God or walk separately from God? I think of the word enmity. Enmity is a word that we don't use too often in the modern English language. Uh, but it's used in scripture in the old English and uh, even in the NIV. The NIV uses the, the word enmity. The word enmity means the quality of being an enemy, the opposite of friendship, ill will, hatred, unfriendly disposition, malevolence. It expresses more than aversion and less than malice and differs from displeasure in denoting a fixed or rooted hatred. Many of us are familiar with the verse in Genesis chapter 315, where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his hill. And this this is God speaking to the devil. That's right. That's right. And he was saying, I will put enmity, this aversion, more than an aversion, this state of um, enemies between my, you know, the offspring of this woman, God's offspring and the offspring of the devil. There will be the state of war between them. You don't have to turn there, but Romans chapter eight reads to set one's mind on the flesh is death. But to set one's mind on the spirit is life and peace for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile or at enmity with God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Isn't that something? The mind that is set on the spirit, the mind that is set on the spirit, the mind that's set on the flesh is in this state of hostility with God. Okay. In James, you don't have to turn there either. But in James chapter four, verse four, it says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend with the world becomes an enemy of God. You are at enmity. You are in hostility with God. So it's pretty clear from Scripture what it means not to walk with God. You can't walk with God and be a friend of the world. You can't walk with God if you set your mind on things of the flesh, right? It's just not available. And it's always that battle, that battle between the flesh and the spirit is separation from God. And remember, when we go back in the story and we look at Adam and Eve and their fall, what was the first thing they did when they recognized that they were naked? They hid from God. They hid from God. From a spiritual perspective, hiding from God and hostility towards God are mankind's natural state. Natural man, I'm talking about. It's the natural state of mankind. He's separate. He's set apart. It's not necessarily a conscious thought, but separation and its corresponding hostility drives the subconsciousness of humanity. It drives it. Mankind is a warring, murderous creature. 
there are a few bright spots here and there, but ultimately human history is defined by its wars. And that's just a fact because there are so many of them. At any one time in history, there are generally about 200 wars going on. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. The fact that this country has has gone so long without an act of war is is pretty amazing. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. See, God is peace. And without God, you don't have genuine peace. Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 17. It says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. There's a lot of hard hearts out there, I'll tell you. Hard hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. You think about that. If you have no feeling going on on the inside, you got to resort to the outside, right? They give themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. And that's one of the characteristics of the fallen nature is this lust for more. There is no moderation in the old nature. In verse 30, it says, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Go to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. See, the passions of man, the passions of man, the inability to say enough is enough. That is just more and more and more indulgence. Romans chapter 7, verse 15, it says, I do not understand what I do. This is Paul speaking. He says, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law as it is. It is no longer I myself who do it, but what? It's the sin living in me. Most of humanity will deny the existence of sin. We recognize it for what it is, don't we? That each one of us in our fallen nature has this sin within, this nature. And that nature is constantly at conflict with our intention, our good intentions, isn't it? I want to do the right thing, but I get tripped up by this old nature, this sinful nature. Verse 18, it says, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not good, is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin living in me. That does. I think this is very interesting from a spiritual point of view. The real you is not your sin. Notice how Paul is separating himself from his sin. He says, it's not me who does it. It's that sin within. Who's the real Paul? The Christ in him. He's the real us. That doesn't mean that you, you know, slough over your sin is no big deal. But it is important for you to recognize that your true identity is not in your sinful nature. Your true, your true identity is in your nature of Christ within. Verse 22, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. That's the Christ in you. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind 
and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And this is the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And that's what we often come to. You know, we spend time reading the Bible. We read God's righteousness and God's goodness and God's light and God's purity. And and what do I see? How I'm not that. <laughs> How in so many different a- areas I'm I'm failing and I see the darkness in my life. And, you know, you want to cry out, oh, wretched man that I am. And that's what the light will do. The light's going to bring you face to face with your old nature. But then it goes on and it says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. But in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And it it depends on which one you commit to, right, for the believer. I can choose to go one way or the other. That's why, you know, there are doctrines out there where people teach that once you get born again, you don't have a problem with sin. Sin is a, you know, it's a foregone conclusion. It's done. Well, that's just not true. (laughs) It's a constant battle, isn't it, within your own soul, So walking with God not only implies that the prevailing power of the enmity of a a man's heart be broken, but also that a person is actually reconciled to God, the Father, in and through the all-sufficient righteousness and atonement of his dear son. Without God, we can do nothing. Without Christ, we can do nothing. There has to be atonement. Atonement. We have to be brought together with God. See, that's the thing about man's religion. What's man's religion? It's man doing all these different works on earth, right? Man putting on his own little play and then looking up to God and saying, do you like it? Right. And that's not true faith. True faith is that God takes the sinner and makes him righteous and then says, go, go forth and be my servant. Right. Through Christ and that you have my power and you have my wisdom and you have my goodness to do. You're not putting on a performance for me. That's not what it's all about. Go to Amos. Amos chapter three. Amos chapter three. And it's not just the fact that God sends you out as if you walked out alone. God walks with you. God walks with you. Look in chapter three and look in verse three. It says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? There's agreement. There's a need for agreement that you have agreement. God and you have agreement. And because you have agreement, you can walk together. Go to Ephesians chapter two, Ephesians chapter two and verse 11. It says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and called uncircumcision by those who are called circumcision, call themselves circumcision. It says that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law, which are with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself 
one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Isn't that something? So this cross not only put to death our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but the cross put to death the hostility that mankind has with God, the enmity with God. Walking with God implies a settled, abiding communion and fellowship with God, or what the scripture in scripture is called the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Go to John chapter 14, John 14. You see, the Holy Spirit is God's very presence within us. It abides with us. His nature abides with us. Where we are, God and Christ are. Where we step is holy ground. That's pretty phenomenal. How often do we think about that? And this isn't just some giant ego trip either. I mean, it's walking humbly with our God. You recognize that God dwelling within you is by no work of your own. You did nothing to deserve it. It's his goodness that made that happen. John chapter 14, look at verse 16. It says, and I will ask the father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before the long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live on that day. You will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. Isn't that awesome? That is our true state as born again believers. Go to second Corinthians chapter six. You know, it's amazing how often the word edification is used in the church epistles and how important it is for God that we be built up. And how do you build up the church? Well, you build up the church by reminding them of who they are in Christ and what God really thinks about them. Second Corinthians six, look at verse 14. It says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and the idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Isn't that just superb? So God has designated us as temples for him to abide in. And so understanding that, the significance of that, that you are a holy vessel of God, why would you become unequally yoked together with unbelievers, those who are living independently, separately from God, right? We walk with God. God abides within us. Walking with God consists especially of the fixed habitual bent for the will of God in a habitual dependence on his power and promise in an habitual voluntary dedication of all our glory to him in a habitual hiding or I'm sorry, habitual eyeing of his precepts in all that we do and in habitual complacence in his pleasure 
in all that we suffer. This was a line from George Whitfield. Walking with God means that we are in, we have developed habits of reliance, habitual reliance upon God in everything that we do. Dedication to, dedication to forego our own glory and give the glory to God and how significant that is. That if God really means much at all to you, you're happy to relinquish the glory for giving it to him. Walking with God implies that we are making progress and advancing in the divine life. Being with or being a child of God is an either you are or either you're not proposition. You can't be halfway a child of God, right? However, being a child of God does not mean that you are in a static sense. That means that life is dynamic. You are either growing or you are diminishing. And we have to recognize that. I heard a prayer uh, in our prayers this morning about complacency. We can't afford to be complacent. We're either growing or we're diminishing. Go to Psalm chapter 84, Psalm 84. And in verse 5, it says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, God who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. What's that mean? Set their hearts on pilgrimage. And, you know, in in a lot of faith, you know, um, pilgrimage means that every year you go off to Mecca. There was this notion of, you know, kind of a, a work that you had to do. I know Muslims have to travel to Mecca one time in their life, right? This pilgrimage. But that's not what it's talking about for us. For a Christian, his entire life is pilgrimage. Well, what does that mean? That means that we're wandering around looking for something? No, that means that we recognize that our life here on earth is temporary. It's temporary. That we are not in this world to take up our permanent abode. That we're just passing through. That we are on pilgrimage. It goes on and says, as they pass through the Valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength. How about that? So everywhere that you have a believer who's going, you know, who's traveling through, who's on pilgrimage, right? They're living their life. They're on pilgrimage and they pass through a valley. And what happens? That valley gets blessed. Isn't that something? And and what happens to the believer? That believer is moving from strength to strength to strength to strength. It's always a growing process. You are becoming stronger and stronger spiritually. It goes on to say, till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Say la. Isn't that beautiful? That the walk of a believer should be going from strength to strength. You should be growing and and blossoming. Go to Second Corinthians chapter three and verse eighteen. It says, "And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed." And I want you to see that our being—it's a process—are being transformed into His likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? So that's what faith is all about, is beholding. You know, so often we get these definitions for faith, which means, well, you just have to grit your teeth and bear it, or you just got to hunker down and push through, right? And, you know, there is aspects of that, surely, that are involved in faith. But faith 
is beholding the glory of the Lord, and you are changed into that same glory, not through any effort on your own. The thing that you're doing is keeping your perspective, keeping your eyes fixed. And while you keep your eyes fixed on the Lord, you are changed into that same image from glory to glory. Isn't that something? That's a healthy reminder because, remember, Satan always wants to get you back into works, works of righteousness. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to do this before you're righteous. God says, nope, you are already righteous. Keep your vision on Christ. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is Paul talking to the Corinthian church. He has a little tinge of disappointment going on here. He says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. (laughs) He says, you are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Isn't that something? And it was in the heart of Paul to take him to great places spiritually, but he really couldn't because why? Because people weren't growing up. They weren't going from strength to strength to strength. They were getting tripped up and they were focusing on worldly things rather than on Christ. Believers keep up and maintain their walk with God by reading his holy word. And we need to keep that in mind. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4. See, God is holy, and his desire is that we become holy as well. We are holy through the new birth. We have that Holy Spirit within, but our minds aren't necessarily so. First Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 14. It says, Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message, when the body of elders laid hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, when we become a Christian, we become part of a body. And that means that my life is not, first of all, you know, my life is not my own, that I've been bought with a price. So my life is it's no longer mine. It's Christ, right? He paid the price for my life. But but the significance of my life isn't just little old me. It's me in the context of the one body. And if I'm not doing my part, that part isn't getting done, right? Go to Second Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, and look in verse 17. It says, Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guards so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men. And fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Grow, grow, this idea of growing, continuing to grow. And you grow as you, what, do. Otherwise, it just becomes kind of an intellectual thing, right? A lot of us know a lot of Bible, but really, you don't really grow spiritually until you are doing and I think that's one of the great tricks of the, of Satan. He doesn't mind you packing your head full of Bible just as long as he can keep you from actually doing anything. Go to John chapter 5 and verse 39. It says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Yet these are the scriptures that testify about me. 
And when we we need to recognize that when we study the scripture, we are studying Christ, ultimately, that he is that thread that binds the whole thing together. And uh, you don't have to turn there, but Psalm 119.24 says, Your statutes, God, are my delight. They are my counselors. That God, through his word, counsels you, counsels your mind, counsels your soul. It's in the word of God that God is able to warn you, right? And so you can't be very far from God's word. Believers keep up and maintain their walk with God by personal prayer. George Whitfield said that the spirit of grace is always accompanied by the spirit of supplication. Supplication means that you are beseeching God for something. So the spirit of grace is always accompanied by the spirit of supplication. And that that makes sense, doesn't it? Remember what James said? He says, uh, you have not. Why? Because you ask not. See, grace is God's giving, but you got to ask. you got to ask. Uh, George Whitfield goes on to say, It is the very breath of the new creature, the fan of the divine life, whereby the spark of the holy fire kindled by the soul in the soul by God is not only kept in, but raised into a flame. A neglect of secret prayer has been frequently an inlet to many spiritual diseases and has been attended with fatal consequences. Isn't that something? That when we're not praying, we're leaving ourselves open for the infiltration, the infection of Satan's attacks. That prayer should be something we do often. Go to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26, and look in verse 41. It says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. How about that? We have got to recognize that we have got to pray for our own selves in this spiritual contest that we're in. And we all know our own temptations, don't we? Well, most of them anyway. Satan has a has a good ability to find new ones. <laughs> But you need to recognize that you are weak. You know, there's just no room for false bravado here, right? I mean, yeah, I, I've grown with God and I, I've got a few things under my belt along the way. But if I trust in myself, I'm failing. I will fail ultimately. I have got to trust in God. He's got to be the one to say, you're about to step in a ditch. Go the other way. And I have got to be praying to God and asking for him to help me with my temptations. George Whitfield also said, Oh, prayer, prayer. It brings and keeps God and man together. It raises man up to God and brings God down to man. If you would there, oh believers, keep up your walk with God, pray, pray without ceasing. Be much in personal set prayer. And when you are about to, uh, and when you are about the common business of life, Be much in spontaneous prayer to send from time to time short letter posts to heaven upon the wings of faith. They will reach the very heart of God and return to you again loaded with spiritual blessings. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. You know, so often we feel like our prayers have got to be ornate, you know, elaborate prayers to God. Oh, holy God. And we got to make a big to do out of it. It isn't that way. He is our constant companion. You know, you think about what it says in Romans 8 about groanings, which cannot be uttered. Well, how about groanings that could be uttered? 
You know, that's that doesn't sound very elaborate to me. Right. You're just communicating with God. Holy and frequent meditation is another blessed means of keeping up a believer's walk with God. Martin Luther said prayer, reading, temptation and meditation make a minister. (laughs) I thought that was great. Prayer, reading, temptation and meditation make a minister. You know, if I didn't have temptation in my life, I'd have nothing to preach about. And see, that's the whole thing here, that we want to strengthen each other to stand against Satan and his attacks. Satan seeks most to rob the believer of this valuable and most necessary time by business. And I think of the the whole lesson of Martha and Mary. Do you remember that? That Jesus came to visit these two sisters, Martha and Mary. And uh, and Martha's like, oh, we have a guest. We have a guest. I got to make things for the guests. And she's running around doing this and that. And Mary's sitting over there talking to Jesus and Jesus is sharing with her. And Martha comes in and says, well, aren't you going to reprove her? She's not up doing what she's supposed to be doing. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are encumbered with too many things. Your sister has chosen the good part. Right. And that's so true. And whatever we do in ministry, we have to recognize that whatever we're doing, it all really means nothing without the truth. I mean, that doesn't mean that you don't put your head down and get the work done. Well, but you have to recognize what's the reason for doing this? Why? Why do we do what we do? There's too much busy work going on in Christendom right now, always, where people think just by the the effort they're doing the right thing. It's not the effort. It's the goal. It's the intent. It's your heart motivations. Psalm 39 says that my heart grew hot within me. And as I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Then I spoke with my tongue. That's the process. If you're not spending good quality time with God, what you're speaking with your tongue ultimately is going to be of the flesh, right? We know this verse, many of us, blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he what meditates day and night, meditates day and night. So meditation is a requirement. Believers keep up their walk with God by watching and noting his revelation to them. We all know the verse that says, be still and know that I am God, that still and quiet voice of God. George Whitfield said, every cross has a call in it, and every particular dispensation of divine providence has some particular end to answer in those to whom it is sent. If it be of an afflictive nature, God does thereby say, my son, keep thyself from idols. If prosperous, he does, as it were, by a small, still voice, say, my son, give me your heart. If believers, therefore, would keep up their walk with God, they must from time to time hear what the Lord has to say concerning them in the voice of his providence. God will give you words that you need along the way. We have to spend our time in his scripture, though, or we will never hear those small, wonderful things that God has to say to us. Our minds will just not. I mean, I think about, you know, we use the term addled, right, to refer to somebody who's a drug, the mind of a drug addled or the drug addled mind of a of a junkie. Right. 
Well, I think it applies to a worldly addled mind of a believer who's not spending time in the scripture. Your mind is world addled. Go to Isaiah chapter 30. See, God is able to effectively communicate to you when you are peaceful, when you're peaceful. If you're not peaceful, you're not able to hear from God. Isaiah chapter 20 or 30 in verse 20, it says, although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the waters of affliction, your teacher will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Boy, I just got total goosebumps on that. (laughs) Isn't that spectacular? That if no matter what situation you're in, you have that voice, this is the way, walk in it. To be guided by the Spirit in combination with the written word of God, Watch, therefore, I pray you, O believers, the motions of God's blessed spirit in your souls and always try the suggestions or impressions that you may at any time feel by the unerring rule of God's most holy word. And if they are not found to be agreeable to that, reflect them as diabolical or delusive. That not every thought that crosses your mind is of God. And that's why we have to know the scripture so we can line things up with the scripture and make sure that they're right. By observing this caution, you will steer a middle course between the two dangerous extremes many of this generation are in danger of running into. I mean, zeal on the one hand and spiritualism and downright infidelity on the other. The word is our test. That's why the word talks about Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. They that would maintain a holy walk with God must walk with him in ordinances as well as in revelation. Go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And in verse 6 it says, both of them, and this is talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's parents, it says, both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Isn't that something? Blamelessly. Those who keep and not just read the ordinances of God will rejoice in God and seek his ways. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. In Isaiah chapter 2, it says in verse 2, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of God, to the house of God, the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's something to walk in the Lord's ways. If you would walk with God, you will associate and keep company with those who walk with him. And we've we've talked about that already, about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. I'm going to finish up here with things that you can use to recognize the difference between God and Satan in your everyday thought life. So God steals you. God is peace. Satan, on the other hand, rushes you. He rushes you. God reassures you. Satan, on the other hand, frightens you. God leads you. Satan, on the other hand, pushes you. God enlightens you. Satan confuses you. God forgives you. Satan 
condemns you. God calms you. Satan stresses you. God encourages you. Satan discourages you. And God comforts you. Satan worries you. So just as we're making our decisions, we have to stay close to God and keep his word within our hearts, recognizing that we can't allow ourselves to become separated from Christ, that Christ is our lifeline to God. So let me go ahead and finish up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that word. Uh, thank you, Father, for blessing us just with a deeper, more meditative understanding of you. Thank you, Father, that we can rely on you and that, Father, that you are with us when times are good and when times are challenging. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this fellowship and blessing each person with a deeper and more profound, more instructive, more constructive understanding of you. I thank you, Father, for your significance in our lives. That, Father, we don't just talk it, but we walk it and we live it. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this. In your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh